Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back once again to an international break edition of the Corner Kick podcast. Now, usually we are just sort of vamping and filling time on these podcasts. However, we have a plethora of interesting tidbits to talk about, managerial appointments, uh, big returns of players we thought were long gone to clubs of old. Uh, we have several juicy international results and some news to cover on that front and a little bit of a, a taster, a taster of what we like to call the corner kick classico. But first, I am joined by a man whose team hasn't beaten Liverpool in what feels like forever, a millennia at this point. It is Nathan Strauss. That is true. But yeah, I mean, the results haven't really gone Arsenal's way against Liverpool in a game that's mattered since basically before we became friends, like the early 2010s, that could change. It probably won't, but anyways, it's good to be here. Yes. So, well, we're going to save the Arsenal Liverpool and looking forward to the weekend chat for the end of the pod. But first I think it is important that we cover some of the, I think some of the, some, some of the very newsworthy managerial appointments that have gone on in you know the past few days or so and look no further than the Premier League once again where Dean Smith is out the door following a five match losing streak at Aston Villa uh, Aston Villa sits 16th in the Premier League table currently you know fighting off relegation and they have turned to Scotland and they have turned to a Premier League legend and Steven Gerrard Liverpool captain you know, Mr. Liverpool, former England great, to come in and steady the ship. He has brought along his you know heavily touted coaching staff uh, from Rangers, including Gary McAllister and Michael Beale, his two assistants. And he's coming off of winning the Scottish Premier League title, an unseating Celtic, uh, and coming off of an unbeaten season to boot with a team that only conceded. 13 goals in the campaign last year also coming off of uh, a few you know highly successful european campaigns with rangers and which he is single-handedly responsible for moving scotland back up of back up uefa's coefficient so nathan steven gerrard you know a very young manager you know certainly he's only 41 years old but someone who's coming to aston villa looking for that step up in his career you know, before he inevitably looks towards the, the Liverpool job, I imagine, but still someone who's coming in with a bit of pedigree to this Villa job. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be, I don't think it's going to be easy, but uh, it makes sense for him to take this job now. And I think a lot of people, Liverpool fans in particular, thought that he might just sort of bide his time at a smaller club before taking over Liverpool in, you know, three years or whenever Klopp decides that, you know, he's had enough. Uh, but I mean, you can't really blame him. I know some people have been a little upset that he would take the village job, but that is sort of the way of the world. And it's pretty hard when you are a club legend at a big club to have, you know, your path back to that club, not cross paths with like another team in the Prem, for example. So, you know, at the very least, it's not a job on Tyne's side. It's not a job uh, on Merseyside, it's in the Midlands and Villa. They've had an interesting mixture of just really bizarre injuries, and also this is their first season in a couple in a long time without Jack Grealish. And some of their transfer business was a bit dodgy. Uh, some of the key players in the center of the park are out. You've got Douglas Louise, who's been injured for parts of the year. Uh, you've got Morgan Sanson, who hasn't really featured at all, and then of course Danny Ings is sort of in the midst of a very Danny Ings run where he scores a couple of goals and then gets injured for, you know, six to eight games and then comes back. So right now Villa were probably the biggest disappointment in the entire league, just based on where we thought they would finish. They're in 16th. I think we all had them clocked for, you know, another top eight kind of year, but that just hasn't been the case so far. Uh, but 
I believe in Jared as a manager. Um, it's obviously very different making the jump from uh, the SPL to the Prem. We've seen that a couple of times. Uh, obviously, Brendan Rogers, sort of the renaissance of Brendan Rogers, is, a, is an interesting example as well. But uh, you know, if the goal for Gerard is the Liverpool job someday, and, and why shouldn't it be? This is a pretty good proving point for him. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only question is like, what does success look like at Aston Villa? And I, I think no doubt, you know, given his relationship with Christian Perslow, who's the Villa president, who was the managing director at Liverpool actually when Gerard was still playing, you know, in the in the Roy Hodgson era, so about ten years ago. Uh, so there is like that established relationship between him and, you know, the hierarchy at Aston Villa. So I have no doubt that he'll be backed with, you know, transfer funds and suitable resources. And he's going to have like a higher caliber of resources available to him starting this job than when he was starting at Rangers, when he essentially had to revitalize the entire infrastructure of that club from top to bottom. Like they were a long, long, long way off. Celtic both in terms of the caliber of the playing squad and you know the training facilities and even like their club culture which Gerard came in you know there's a piece on the athletic where you can read where he came in and even like you know the players sitting in the canteen like they weren't sitting together and Gerard like rearranged the canteen to make it so that everyone had to essentially you know sit in these small groups of players and like uh, learn about each other so he is like um, a very savvy both a man manager and a tactician uh, in terms of his coaching staff, you know, Michael Beal comes in, having worked with him at Liverpool and elsewhere in the Premier League and in the SPL. He's a really famed uh, kind of tactician uh, on the training pitch. You know, Gary McAllister, a established, you know, figure in English soccer, you know, a legend both at Liverpool and also a former uh, Aston Villa assistant manager under Gerard Houllier. So he's got a lot of like experience surrounding him and I think he's built up a good head of steam for himself as a coach and the only question is like there's no chance you're like you're finishing in the top four with Aston Villa you know in the way that the Premier League is set up right now like what so what is like I guess like what you know level of success at Villa means that he's proved himself enough to take that step up to eventually getting the Liverpool job in 2024 let's say when Klopp decides to take a sabbatical, you know, is, is an eighth place or a ninth place finish with Villa going to be enough or is it going to be a case of where he needs to get them up to, you know, fifth or sixth place into European qualification? Well, the good news is that it's not an issue that I actually really have to worry about, you know, because as someone who doesn't have a, a sort of sporting interest in Liverpool, he'll either end up there or he won't. Uh, it's important to note too, that he's still young by managerial standards. You know, um, there's no there's no specific time frame for it. And frankly, my guess is that when he takes the Liverpool job, it's going to be a sort of Arteta-esque, a Chavi-esque period of rebuilding, right? You know, it's going to be after the Mane, Sala, Firmino, Van Dijk era will probably have lapsed, you know, because four years from now, those players are in their early 30s uh, to mid-30s. And it becomes a very different scene. So I'm sort of hoping to be able to judge Gerard's Villa on their own merits and not in the context of what it could mean for a future Liverpool appointment. But I understand why you and the sort of general media narrative would always have that on the back of their minds. And of course, Gerard is impossible to separate from Liverpool, right? Uh, this does mean, by the way, that there are now two former MLS managers in the uh in the prem now or mls players rather in the prem managing now but well oh, no. patrick Vieira, no, Vieira, Vieira didn't play yeah Vieira, yeah Vieira managed in mls but didn't play and jared played there but yeah yep well i think the interesting thing for liverpool fans is that they are going to be coming up against uh rafa benitez twice this season and they're going to be coming up against steven gerard twice this season which i don't think you know at the beginning of the campaign was something any of us expected to be happening. It's definitely been weird, you know, seeing the photos trickle out of, you know, Aston Villa's social media of him taking training in like the Villa tracksuit and like club shop gear. Like that is like a very strange, like him holding up the kit as well. I'm happy for him. I, this is a great step up for him in his career. I eventually, of course, want him to get the opportunity 
to manage Liverpool, both because, you know, he's my favorite player of all time. And I, and I think I, he's got the bona fides as a coach to do a good job. But it's going to be interesting to see, like, what the barometer of success for him is at an Aston Villa that, like, clearly, you know, wants to invest in becoming a powerhouse in the Premier League going forward. And it's a lot is going to fall on the shoulders of Gerard to do similar things to he did with uh, Rangers to get them up the table. Well, as we move on from Aston Villa, Nathan, I think we should talk about their former coach, Dean Smith, who I, I have a lot of sympathy for. You know, he is an Aston Villa fan. He was getting the chance to coach the team that he's loved ever since he was a boy. He was doing a decent job. You know, he finished in the top half of the Premier League last season, developed a lot of talent. Uh, however, he is out the door for the high-profile name in Steven Gerrard, and he has immediately found himself a new job in bottom of the table, Norwich City. <laughs> I thought you were going to say in the championship. That's, <laughs> no, but for all intents and purposes, where they are right now. Exactly. But. However, I think, you know, if Norwich are looking for a manager post Farca and are looking for someone who knows, you know, the English pyramid quite intimately and who could probably get them back up next season or even, you know, try and scrape this season uh, from the, the jaws of relegation, this is a perfect appointment for them. Yeah, I think it's I think it's right. I think uh, the odds of Norwich staying up right now, I would say, are less than what one in five, maybe one in six. It would require uh, Ranieri at Leicester esque turnaround right now, just based on the talent that Norwich have, or rather, don't have as well. So it's a good appointment for them. Um, you know, he's someone who can help them rebuild in the Championship. He obviously has plenty of experience there. And again, as managers go, he's only fifty years old, right? And so he has a good chunk of time left uh, being in sort of his, his peak years. Uh, and he seemed like, you know, all around a pretty decent guy. And, and Villa played a nice way. Um, and something that Norwich haven't really done in the Premier League is play particularly pretty soccer this year in particular. And I think in the, in the championship, what? Oh, importantly, Norwich do not defend well. And Dean Smith's teams tend to defend well. Yeah, overall, and, and and to a certain extent, you know, I feel a little bad, uh, you know, criticizing their defending when you look at the defenders that they have. True, um, but Dean but, Smith got like the best out of Matt Target and Ezri Kansa, right? And, and other players Mings. and other players really emerged under him. Uh, you know, like like Matty Cash, uh, obviously as well. Who you know, full Poland international now, Matty Cash. Um, but yeah, I mean, the fight to keep. Norwich in the Prem, not just this year, but sort of in general, is pretty Sisyphusian, giving the, having seen their sort of yo-yo nature going all the way back to 2017, 2018, 2018-19. But um, I like it. It'll certainly make it interesting. Um, and I'm glad he found employment so quick because I do think that had it not been for injuries or a bad run of form, he probably would have been able to stay in his, in his old job. Yeah, I mean, it's not often that you see a manager get sacked from a job and then immediately plunge into a vacancy. Like usually once you get sacked, you take a bit of time off, but he seems to be like raring to go, which is kind of unusual. And I think a good sign for North City and, and their fans as well. But yes, that is, you know, the Premier League vacancies. I think we want to go over to Catalonia real quick to check on the the start of Xavi Hernandez's tenure as Barcelona manager. And it begins in an interesting place because you have all these reports coming out that he has like a list of 10 things that he's demanding from his players, uh, some of which are very odd. Uh, you know, he is instituting like really early curfews for things. Um, players need to arrive at training exactly 90 minutes or two hours ahead of the session. And there's some really like uh, some new, interesting, strict rules and regulations being appointed at Barcelona. However, to balance this, he has brought back the king of fun. He has brought back social media magnet. He's brought back one of the world's most popular players to ever, I think, grace the pitch at the Camp Nou and perhaps European football as a whole. Nathan, 38-year-old out of contract with Sao Paulo, Danny Alves has taken the number eight at Barcelona and signed on a free this week. Yeah, Danny Alves, absolute legend. 
uh, obviously the most decorated player in football history, I believe. With, yes, that is true. Well, I, I, it's over 40 trophies. I don't, I don't know how many trophies it is, but it's, it's a lot. He had such an interesting career path too, because he was, he was really good with Sevilla, you know, before we ever really watched him there. Um, and then moved to Barcelona where he was part of that great series of Barcelona teams from 2008 to 2016, played one year at Juve, about a year and a half at PSG, and then switched to playing center midfield in Sao Paulo. Uh, but I think this is a great move. First of all, obviously these two are very familiar having shared the same side of the pitch for a number of years. Uh, it's this Barcelona team doesn't really have an elder statesman who's super vocal. PK and Busquets are different kinds of leaders, um, but both are sort of, they've sort of seen their influence wane, I think, a little bit as a result of age and as a result of losing a lot of the forward impetus in this team. So I'm not entirely sure how much Danny Alves is going to see the pitch, but I think it's a great move from a PR standpoint. I think it's a great move for Danny Alves, who... I'm sure we'll have the chance to, you know, work on coaching badges if he wants to, um, you know, Barcelona do a good job of taking care of their own. You think about Eric Abidal um, having rejoined, obviously Abidal was the left back to Danny Alves's right back for a number of years too. So I don't know. I really like Danny Alves, just a super joyous guy, sort of Patrice Evra-esque in his love for the game. Uh, and so I'm excited to see what he can do, but, also sort of tempering the expectations in terms of like the on-pitch product. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure Danny Alves is going to see, you know, 25 to 30 games this season as a Barcelona player. But I think I totally agree with you in terms of, you know, pound for pound, one of the more experienced players on the market right now. And this team needs a certain level of durability and experience in terms of the way that they, they go about. You know, just look at the Celta Vigo match. You know, perhaps with someone like Danny Alves on the field in the latter stages of that game, you know, Barcelona don't concede <laughs> three goals or two goals at the end of that match and don't surrender the point. Um, Danny Alves is very, very old. You know, that goes without saying. Uh, his first La Liga goal he scored in 2003, I believe November 2003. and Gavi was not yet born to put that in perspective. So, right. That's a, that's a truly baffling stat. Um, But yeah, I also think it shows, you know, as we've talked about a lot that clearly the focus of the next six months at the very least, probably more like 18 months is going to be youth. You know, um, Barcelona announced today that they're not actually able to register any new players this winter. So there won't be any winter transfer business in terms of incomings. And I think financially, we sort of know that Barcelona are going to be heavily constrained uh, in what they can do for the foreseeable future. You know, they were barely able to register the players who they had brought in on freeze this last year because of wage budget concerns. So it's going to take a little while for that to play out. So getting Danny Alves on a free, um, you know, someone who doesn't really need to worry about the money that he makes. Uh, it's a nice, it's, it's going to be a nice balance for the players like Pedri like Fati, like Gavi and Nico, and even some of the other youngsters like Kaita Balde who might end up having a bigger role to play. Um, you know, the youth movement is well and truly on. And I, I don't think it's a bad thing for Xavi to start out as a little bit more authoritarian than maybe we would think he ends up at, if that makes sense. Like, right. it's, it's hard for managers. And this is something that Pep realized, I think, later on as well. It's hard for managers to make people adhere to a certain set of rules for the entire time. Uh, you know, same with Alex Ferguson, same with Arsene Wenger, for example. You know, I remember when, or I don't remember when, but he famously, you know, made Arsenal cut out, uh, you know, the beer and the soft drinks and stuff when he came in before sort of general fitness theory was applied. Um, but that's a long-winded version of saying that I get why he's doing what he's doing, laying down the law, um, bringing some order to the team, after a fairly uh, ambivalent Ronald Koeman era. I mean, and who else, who, who else is uh, better for someone like Serginho Dest to learn off of than a Danny Alves? You know, the, the next 
the next coming of an attacking fullback of Barcelona and Dest learning from, you know, the OG Pep Guardiola's first ever signing as Barcelona manager. So I think there's a bit of a poetic nature in that as well. But let us move on from Barcelona and watch that space. Nathan, let's get into some of these international results. It was a bit more of an eventful break than I think we're used to as, you know, European qualifying comes to a close or comes to the apex of, you know, this opening round as we get into, you know, settling the playoffs and who's going to be playing in in those rounds uh, in order to earn a place in Qatar. And also, you know, looking stateside into North America and observing, you know, a bit of the hex qualifying and as well as some of the countable qualifying as well. But let's begin in Europe and let's talk about Portugal, who surrendered a Mitrovic, a glorious Alexander Mitrovic header at the Estadio de Luz and sees them lose two to one. And that means that this, you know, probably the golden generation of Portugal, this talented team with depth all over the place in every position, you know, Joao Cancela, Bruno Fernandes, Diogo Jota, Cristiano Ronaldo, Bernardo Silva, uh, more and more, Renato Sanchez is going to be vying for a place in the World Cup through the playoff spots. Nathan, this is, in my opinion, you know, frankly unacceptable and another indicator that probably Fernando Santos should have been sacked a long time ago from this job. Yeah, he's not, he is sort of a, a, he was a weird appointment when it happened. And I think he got a lot of plaudits nationally or domestically rather because of what happened in 2016. But as we know, that was an incredibly fluky and weird result. And it required a once in a lifetime goal from a player who has basically not been heard from since. Uh, and do you, you know what Eder is doing? I certainly don't. I, I bet he's playing in Turkey. That's my Eder. guess. And okay, I'm going to look, look it up. You look, you look it up and, and I'll, I'll keep talking. But you look at the opponents in this group, Ireland, Luxembourg, Azerbaijan, and Serbia. It is pretty upsetting if you're a Portugal fan to think that this team couldn't come out on top. Uh, you know, and credit to Serbia as well for going undefeated. And I am personally very happy for Dusan Tadic, who showing that he doesn't just do it in the Eredivisie was far and away the man of the match in the Portugal game and has just been churning out goals um, lately. But yeah, not good enough for Portugal whatsoever. The draw with Ireland, I think, is first of all, hilarious. And second of all, huge. You know, they were outcreated by Ireland at the Aviva Stadium in Dublin. That is pretty embarrassing. Uh, and obviously Pepe got sent off in that one as well, just, you know, for old time's sake. So I don't know. I mean, when you're drawing nil-nil with Ireland at the Aviva, I just uh. lose all of my sympathy for you. Um, and, you know, it's at the end of the day, Serbia did what was required and didn't lose the game, and Portugal did. And they're going to have to play in the playoff. And we know these playoffs can produce some really weird results. Think about, you know, Italy a few years ago or the great Sweden one from 2016 or 2017 pre-World Cup. That was the same um, one as Sweden beat Italy. No, the pre, the, the one before that. Um, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Cause yeah, it was Zlatan, it was Sweden and Portugal. Yes. Um, Zlatan Ronaldo. And, and I think, right. Or it might've been a Euro playoff. I think it was a Euro playoff, but yeah, the point, the point still stands. Um, and, you know, they should have enough quality to get through. Uh, but if they don't, I would say, uh, did you see the post-match scene, by the way, of Ronaldo sort of taking off the captain's armband and like yelling at Santos? And that's, that's pretty, uh, I, I, I mean, I don't like Ronaldo, but I, I mean, it's pretty, pretty calamitous. You know, it's verging on France-esque, right? No, I think it is. And I think you look at the football that they play and it, like you were saying, it's like so regressive for the talent that they have on display. And I think we were talking about that a lot during our Euro podcast about the fact that they could be playing some of the most beautiful football in the world with this squad, with a manager that was just about like a half step, even more progressive than Santos. And like that, like you were saying, you know, they shithoused their way to that uh, that Euro title in 2016. And like that, you know, obviously bought him a lot of time, but now is, now is the time where you have to analyze the terrain, 
this is going to be the best chance they have to win a World Cup with Ronaldo still, you know, banging the goals at his age. You know, this is definitely his last, you know, big World Cup tournament. You know, so I imagine he'll play the Euros, but I think this is going to be it for him on the world stage. And they need to make the most out of this squad, this like incredibly valuable and talented team that they have assembled uh, over there in Portugal. But speaking of Ed Air. Ed is he in Turkey? He's not in Turkey. Is he in China? No. So he, along with WWE and Newcastle, has bought into uh, securing the bag in Saudi Arabia. Ah, uh, plays for Al He plays for Al Rayed. Well, I have never heard of Al Rayed. So uh, yes. good for Edder. I mean, good for him, right? Man did, I mean, clearly his career peaked there. Um, but- and so, like, <laughs> <laughs> After that, uh, he was playing for the, Swansea that season. Well, well, the other the other Edder moment that I remember really vividly is he was the one on that breakaway when Hector Bellerin made that 110 yard oh, sprint yeah. to deny him, which was probably one of, if not the singular best um, defensive effort play I've seen from an Arsenal player in my life. But yep. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't thought about Edder much since he, then. I know he did okay. he also play in Russia at some point. Yes, so I'm, I'm going through his career okay, okay. right here. So he played for Braga, which is where he scored, you know, the bulk of his goals, and then he signed for Swansea in 2016. Didn't score a single Premier League goal, but then that is the summer where you know he scores the goal at the Euros in the final, and then he goes back. Uh, he goes on loan to Lille, in which he scores, you know, some decent. Gets a decent return at Lille. And then he signs for Lokomotiv Moscow. And then now he plays for Al Riot in Saudi Arabia. So reasonable trajectory for Edward. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I think that's, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, there's probably, we could probably do an episode at some point of like forgot, like one hit wonders, but one hit wonders. Like, Dude, you know, yes, absolutely. Michu. Yeah, throw, throw Michu in there. Um, Michu. Real Oviedo, legend, and yeah. Swansea, other fellow Swansea City. Legend, John Flanagan. Yeah, John Flanagan. Uh, well, we were talking the other day in the group chat about um, Manchester United youth players who score. Uh, there was a guy who scored twice on his debut in the. Oh FA yeah, yeah, James Wilson. Yeah, James Wilson, who now plays, I think, in League Two. Yep. But I remember he scored as like a seventeen-year-old a brace. Um, I think he was a bit older than that, but yeah, I remember. But yeah, well, the point is, yep. it's certainly interesting to think about. Uh, were there any other big results in Europe that you wanted to touch on? Before I mean, we... yes, I think we need to talk about the fact that Italy <laughs> are <laughs> uh, staring down the barrel of yet again having to qualify for the world, for a place in, in the World Cup through the playoffs. And how incredible this would be, Nathan, you know, after drawing nil-nil to Northern Ireland and drawing also to Switzerland you know, Ireland, Northern Ireland and regular Ireland, they're really kind of upsetting the apple cart for the big European teams this past week. But yeah, and thankfully for England, they're no longer in Europe. But yeah, <laughs> how incredible it would be uh, for Italy off the back of winning the Euros to once again not qualify for the World Cup. So it'd be not qualify for the World Cup in 2018, come back, win the Euros, and then not qualify for the World Cup in 2022. You know, I think, you know, they have the talent to make it through the playoffs, but just how incredible would this be if that turned out to not be the case? Yeah, I mean, it's especially funny because they haven't allowed more than one goal in their, more than one goal in a game in their entirety of this qualification cycle. It's literally just been their inability to score. You know, the draw with Bulgaria back in the first international break of this calendar, this football year. Um, is pretty is pretty damning, and then obviously not being able to beat Northern Ireland, a team with a strike partnership of 31 year old Josh McGuinness of Hull and 25 year old Oxford United center forward Gavin White. I mean, at that point, you know, if the if the front three of Chiesa, Insigne, and Berardi can't break through, I mean, I don't really have that much sympathy for them. And at the end of the day, the only difference between them and Switzerland was Switzerland got one win. Um, compared to Italy's draw. And that's sort of the nature of the beast with these five-team groups instead of the six-team groups. And, you know, Italy should have enough quality to get through. Um, But it shows that, 
you know, you need to be more than just incredibly defensively solid in the qualifying cycle, um, especially when you're in a group that has, you know, some more compact teams. And to be fair, as far as the bottom of the table goes in these groups, I do think Northern Ireland, Bulgaria, and Lithuania is a bit more challenging than some of the ones. Like, you know, they don't have a, like a Faroe Islands Albania. or a San Marino. Yeah. Well, Albania, or Albania also can also be difficult, but they don't have like a Gibraltar, Gibraltar. or yeah, yeah, or Malta. Like it's it's very it's a little tricky. But at the end of the day, I mean, Italy they'll either go through or they won't. And uh, I mean, it's, it's actual <laughs> soccer is weird. She sure will, Nathan. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's turn our gaze from Europe. I mean, let's give some props to the Dutch who are back at the World Cup. They qualified, you know, finally under Louis van Hall. It seems like. <laughs> Probably he's like the third manager to have gone through this qualification process in this cycle, but he's gotten the job done. Uh, was a little nervy there after two two draw against Montenegro, but you know in the end they got the results necessary. And Virgil Van Dijk, Memphis Depay, and Co. will be at the World Cup next year once again, managed by Louis Van Hall. Yes, it was very interesting because you had all three of the teams in, or rather, you had. Norway, who needed a win to make the playoffs, going up against the Netherlands, who needed a point to no Erling make the Holland. playoffs. Yeah, no Erling Holland, obviously, who's out until I believe after Christmas at this yes. point with injury. Um, but yeah, they left it late on, but they got you know a couple of goals late to send them through. Steven Bergwijn scored in the 84th minute, uh, and this Netherlands team is—they have too much quality not to make it. But that obviously hasn't stopped them in the past with a uh, you know some some less than competent managers at the helm but i don't know i think this team could be a real dark horse um wherever they where whatever group they end up getting drawn into just on the basis of that back line alone like it's incredibly balanced you've got the lichten van dyke as your center back pairing which is as good a pairing as you're going to see in international soccer and then daily blind who is maybe the best transfer in value for money transfer that the Netherlands has seen, um, you know, going back to Ajax and then a very different kind of attacking threat um, in Denzel Dumfries on the right, who obviously played well enough last year to earn him a move uh, or internationally last year to earn him that move to Inter. And then in the midfield, you've, you're going to have like an aging Wijnaldum balanced by a, a much younger Frankie de Jong. And then whoever they throw in as that third center mid, whether it's Davi Klaassen, uh, you know, whether it's Ryan Gravenberg or Toon Koopminers or Gus Till, that's a, a, a really Darun. solid area. Martin Darun, who is sort of less flashy, um, but, but a little more defensively solid. And then, but I think it helps because Genie Wijnaldum really bombs forward for this Netherlands yeah. team. You know, he's scored a lot of the goals in this qualification cycle, and he scored, you know, a fair bit of goals at the Euros as well. Yeah, and then you can make it, they can, they can drop another player back out wide if they want, or they can go with Depay up top, and then balance him off with, um, you know, a player like Noah Long, who scored in his debut for them, or Steven Bergwijn, or Daniel Nolan, who's still getting back to full fitness, um, but obviously earned his place uh, in Dortmund after last year's exploits at PSV. So I don't know. I I quite like Dutch soccer. I quite like the Dutch national team, um, but they've been such a disappointment over the last like eight years. It's nice to see them kind of rounding back into form. Yes. Okay. Let's fly our way over to North America and take a look at a few games. Nathan, the U.S. won one and drew one in order to you know further cement their bid for a place in Qatar. And they beat Mexico by a famous scoreline, Dose Zero. It was not, you know, the prettiest of performances in Cincinnati against the Mexico side. But Greg Berhalter has once again beaten Tata Martino in an important match this time by the famous scoreline 2-0. And also, you know, it was a pretty, I think, a solid performance overall from this USMNT in this game. Yeah, and I think I'm not really too concerned about the draw in Jamaica, especially seeing as it probably should have been a loss after Bobby de Cordova-Reed produced one of the most incredible misses I've ever seen. Yep. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, the U.S. has now beaten Mexico twice in huge competitions this year. Three times. Uh, well, yeah, but two of the games really matter. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying, uh, if you want to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, if we're being precise and... and nope. Yeah. Um, you know, and 
again, it wasn't the prettiest of games. The U.S., they didn't come out and say this officially, but this game took place in Cincinnati, which has the fewest uh, percentage of Mexican residents of like any city where the U.S. has played, which is very interesting because, like, look, I have nothing against, <laughs> like, host nations deciding where to play their matches. And we'll get to Canada in a minute, and we can talk about that too. But uh, it's just certainly interesting and maybe not a little cowardly, but, like, I, I, like I get it. I always I'll sort of wish they did strategic, for sure. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely strategic. Um, yep. And Mexican fans uh, as a whole have a lot going on right now as well. But Weston McKinney, I thought, was fantastic in this game. Uh, and again, and yeah, and again, in, 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 in both of these games uh, for the U.S., this international, this national break, I thought the lineup was spot on. Um, with the exception of I would play Matt Turner over Zach Steffen. But uh, at the end of the day, the U.S. now has an 87% chance of qualifying outright for the World Cup uh, with a, a grueling uh, stretch ahead uh, of games. So I'm uh, sort of excited to see the last bit of things here because it's going to be absolute carnage in the Ocho, which I think we all agree is actually better than the Hex. I agree. I would agree that it is better than the Hex. I think you get a little bit more flavor uh, in this qualifying format. And I thought, yeah, Nathan, I thought this was, like you were saying, the lineup was spot on in this game. I think Musa, Adams, and McKinney is the midfield three that Burhalter needs to go with going forward. It's the perfect um, blend of dynamism and stability. And I think you saw that against Jamaica when Tyler Adams was removed from the picture and replaced with Richards You know, as a holding midfielder. It just wasn't exactly... The same, uh, I think Tim Weah has really come on leaps and bounds in his team. He's found his place as sort of an inside forward coming off the right for this team, you know, providing the goods against Jamaica. And I think providing a really good outlet against Mexico as well. You know, Christian Pulisic getting the monkey off of his back, you know, coming back from a long-term injury and scoring and getting to unveil his like man in the mirror t-shirt and everything. You know, he loves a bit of banter against Mexico. So I think all icing on the cake there. And I just want to talk briefly about that Mikel Antonio goal, but most importantly, the failed rebound <laughs> follow-up <laughs> from that guy. <laughs> I forget who the actual player was, but just go and look for it. You know, Mikel Antonio scores, you know, an incredible goal for Jamaica from outside the box. You know, just an absolute <laughs> rocket. And then, you know, some poor Jamaican player uh, attempts to follow it up by like putting it into the back of the net before going off to celebrate with his teammates. Instead, he mishits it and then totally falls on the ground, uh, humiliating himself. But not a humiliating performance for Jamaica. You no know, winning one or uh, winning one one. Excuse me, drawing one one um, on home soil. But let us move on, as Nathan indicated, to the Estadio Ice Teca in Edmonton, Canada. They cleared off inches of snow for this game. It is Mexico once again having to travel to an undesirable location. It looked very frigid. However, the boys north of the border, probably the form team in CONCACAF and one of the form teams in international soccer right now, Canada got it done with a 2-1 win. They are 4-4-0 in qualifying, sitting on 16 points. Nathan, it looks like this Canada side is going to the World Cup, and deservedly so. Yeah, and first of all, if you are not familiar with Canadian geography, and the only reason that I say this is because after working in the Toronto Blue Jays organization this last summer, which has a lot of Canadian players in it, I learned a lot more than I would have expected about sort of provincial geography, um, and also being a hockey fan as well. Look up where Edmonton is because it is almost an entire length of Florida north of Montana. Um, it is far and away the northernmost location that uh, the Canada MNT can actually play a game. Like you think about where Montreal, Ottawa, and Toronto are basically level with sort of upstate New York um, or uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, or Chicago. Edmonton is closer to the southern tip of Alaska. Um, in terms of latitude. So deciding to play that game on a turf field, which is normally not something that teams would elect to do, is just banter, first of all. And I think you saw that after Kyle Aaron scored. Uh, I forget which player. It might have been Richie Larea. Uh, it might have been Sam Adekube, 
who just jumped into one of the piles of snow uh, in the on the banks. But you think about the great CONCACAF, like the snowball between the USA uh, and Costa Rica a couple of years ago. It's hilarious because you think about playing in Tegucigalpa or, you know, one of the other destinations in Central America, and it could not be more of a different experience, but with the same hostile vibes. And I personally loved, you know, Alistair Johnson, Wake Forest and Nashville United legend, uh, you know, waving goodbye to Mexico off the pitch. Uh, it's, it's class. And frankly, Canada deserved the year of the R. We talked about them the last time we did a sort of uh, national team roundup or World Cup qualifying roundup. But even with a more defensive alignment going against Mexico, they looked really good. And, you know, their front three of Alfonso Davies, who gets to play in his initial position as a left winger, Tejan Buchanan, who is a candidate for the MLS Young Player of the Year and obviously moving to Bruges in, you know, about a month whenever the Revs season ends. Uh, and Kyle Laren, who is certainly capable and is, you know, playing in Turkey in the prime of his career. Not to mention Jonathan David, who came off injured yesterday. Uh, you know, this is a really capable team. They also cap-tied uh, former Chelsea product Ike Ugbo, who could have been eligible for Nigeria and or England, I believe. Uh, so I don't know. I'm a big fan first of, of Canada. Uh, oh, Canada as a national anthem just is an absolute banger and a half. Uh, but also, like, teams are going to eventually learn if you try to fight with Canada, like, they're hockey boys. Like, they will fight you back. Uh, so also boasting the best jerseys in CONCACAF um, by far, those yeah, black ones. I think so, but, too. But I, I digress. Think, you know, they have, like you said, a bit of swagger, which is kind of unusual for a Canadian soccer team in particular to have. They have a bit of personality, I think, stemming from, you know, a player as uh, technically gifted and as personality driven as Alfonso Davies, you know, someone who has already won a Champions League, already played at the pinnacle of the game. And I think there is a lot of players on this team Um who like Alistair Johnson and Eustachio and those guys too, who have a lot to prove and have a lot of quality. And I think are in the next year or so are going to become a bit more of household names to soccer fans around the globe. And I think, like you said, you know, I watched them play uh, in Nashville against the U S that one, one draw uh, in, in, in Nissan stadium. And I was really impressed with them. They could have easily gone on to win that game and their defensive structure is going to be one that's going to serve them really well in a World Cup group. And um, so I, I'm excited to see them in Qatar. I'm excited to see what they can do against, you know, the big boys of the sport. And as far as, you know, representing CONCACAF, I think they're going to do that really well. But Nathan, let us move on from the international fixtures to talk about the return of the Premier League this weekend, and in particular, one fixture that is close to our hearts and our nerves. It is Liverpool versus Arsenal. Liverpool coming off of a, I think, a rousing defeat, it has to be said, against West Ham in London to David Moyes' men, their first of the season in the Premier League. Arsenal on a 10-match unbeaten run. The form team in the Premier League coming into this game. Nathan, how are you feeling about this one? This is probably Arsenal's biggest test since that Chelsea game way back in August? I, so my, <laughs> the last five years of Arsenal Liverpool games has been so unpleasant for me and not, it's more than unpleasantness that's caused by the game itself. But, you know, you and I aren't immune to a friendly wager every now and again, but Liverpool have just absolutely smoked us every single time that we have taken on uh, you know, Liverpool going all the way back to a, the 2016 season when we had the Coquelin Santi Cazorla midfield with Mesut Ozil and Alexis Sanchez up top. I think Arsenal won that one 3-1 or 4-1. Um, and aside from that, Arsenal haven't beaten Liverpool in the Prem since then in a game that mattered. They obviously won that game 2015. during... They, yeah, they obviously won yeah. the game during Project Restart when Liverpool already had the league wrapped up where <laughs> Reese Nelson scored the world's crappiest goal. Um <laughs> Uh, but so I, I'm not, what's the, I'm not enthusiastic about this game and I'm not optimistic about this game, but what I do hope is that we don't get blown out. You know, I think 
certain teams have played Liverpool tough this year. Uh, you know, most recently West Ham, but previously Brighton and obviously Brentford, who played Arsenal very tough as well. Um, those have been the main roadblocks to Liverpool's title campaign so far. And frankly, if Arsenal win this game, we go above Liverpool, which would be weird um, because it's totally undeserved based on the quality of the squad. But uh, I don't know. I, I think I think Arsenal will give Liverpool a run for their money. My hope is that we just are a little bit more solid defensively than we've been in these games in the past. I think about how Roberto Firmino decides to become prime R9 when he sees the Arsenal red and white. <laughs> uh, it's, it's actually ridiculous. No, it's like so he, true. So I don't know. My, my hope is to keep the game competitive. My hope is not necessarily to win, but to provide a result the team can take some lessons from, uh, you know, before moving on to a, a really key stretch of fixtures, uh, you know, going up against the likes of Newcastle, the likes of Manchester United, and then Everton and Southampton before the Boxing Day fixtures arrive. Yeah, I mean, I'm not as confident about playing Arsenal as I was around this time last year. Um, I, I don't think Arsenal are going to get blown off the pitch. I think the compactness of this 4-4-2 that Mikel Arteta set them up in is actually going to be uh, exactly what they need to come up against the Liverpool team who's going to press them just as fiercely. I think the fact that Aubameyang is working so hard off the ball is going to be something that Liverpool need to cope with as well. I do think we'll win the game. I think it'll be something more resembling a 2-1 scoreline than, let's say, like a 4-1. Um, but it could even be that Arsenal can find a way to get a draw in this one. You know, Liverpool, you know, aside from the Champions League, have been a little inconsistent uh, in the, the past three or so weeks in terms of their play. And there's definitely ways to get at them in terms of their defense being a little frail. I think the fact that they're still coping with the loss of Genie Wijnaldum and someone who is willing to drop into those spots and cover defensively, particularly when Fabinho hasn't been available to do so. And Liverpool also are starting to mount up in terms of players in the injury column. You know, Jordan Henderson and Sadio Mane were both sent home early from their respective international teams because they picked up Knox. Curtis Jones is still recovering from an eye injury that he uh, accrued in training. I think Andy Robertson picked up a hamstring injury away on Scotland duty. Roberto Firmino is actually not going to be available to play in this game. You know, he's still recovering from a hamstring injury himself. So you're spared in that regard. But yeah, there's a lot of you know, missing pieces. Nabi Kaita too is still recovering from injury as well. Harvey Elliott, you know, is back in training, but who knows when we'll be able to see him. So yeah, there's a lot of question marks about this Liverpool team going into uh, the restart of the Premier League. I think you're going to see, you know, the likes of Costa Shimikas. Uh, the likes of Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, you know, player you know very well. And I think we're going to rely on sort of an unfit Sadio Mane and Jordan Henderson to lead this team into this game. You know, Allison and Fabinho took a photo today of like all the other English players like Gabriel Jesus, Ederson, Fred on the PJ heading back from Brazil. So who knows what condition they're going to be in upon arrival as well. So I think, you know, while Liverpool on paper have the better team, there's still a lot of question marks, you know, about this point in the season for them. Yeah. And also I think Arsenal have shown an ability to play up to opponents in big games under Arteta this season and sort of the tail end of last season in particular. Um, I think about the games against Chelsea as uh, obviously not the most recent game against Chelsea, but the first games against Chelsea as an example of that. So I don't know. It's going to be really interesting. I also think it's going to be interesting um, you know, to see how these two teams in particular deal with the upcoming AFCON schedule, because, you know, a large portion of Arsenal's goals um, are AFCON centric in the form of <laughs> Aubameyang, um, but also Thomas Partey, who yeah. we, will not be featuring this coming week uh, in all likelihood. And but, ex- exclusively, most of Liverpool's goals <laughs> come from the uh, the AFCON region. Yes, I think Mo but, Salah and Sadio Mane will be huge misses, particularly if Roberto Firmino is not um, fit to play. But if you had told me, if you had told me at the start of the season that by the time the twelfth match day rolls around, Arsenal will be two points shy of Liverpool and above teams like Spurs and United, I would take it in a heartbeat. So. 
you know, this unbeaten match run is going to end eventually. But the important thing is that Arsenal don't deviate too, too much from what they've built on. Like, I don't want to see Arsenal massively alter their game plan. Like, I remember when we rolled into Anfield two years ago and played that weird 4-4-2 with a diamond. Ugh. Yeah, like, I remember that. Like, the way Arsenal have been playing recently has provided enough of a system that I think is sustainable going forward that the only way to test it is to use it in a game. And so, like, if if the system that Arsenal play right now doesn't work against Liverpool, I'd rather have it not work and to take lessons away from it than to try and do some weird, like, gimmicky stuff and, you know, lose anyways. No, I mean, I think this is a good... They stumbled upon... I think stumbled is, you know, not the term. I think it's, like, you know, a pretty well-worked-out 4-4-2 particularly off the ball, I think Arsenal have been far more impressive and structurally well-organized. But I think, you know, if they're going to lose against Liverpool, there's no shame, you know. These are the teams where you really need to stick by your system, particularly, let's say, if, you know, Mo Salah goes through on goal early and that's one in, like, the third minute. You can't, like, go back. Mikel Arteta, you know, as a manager who has, I think, earned back a lot of his credibility in the past month or two, like can't just go to the drawing board again and like switch everything around and go back to four, two, three, one. I think he's got to stick by this system that I think has produced the goods for, you know, players like Emil Smith Rowe, Thomas Partey and Bukayo Saka in particular. Yeah. And all in all, I'm just, you know, I'm excited for this game. It's the biggest test that Arsenal have had since going on this run. I mean, no offense to Spurs, but they didn't really put up much resistance um, in when we faced them. And uh yeah, I, I'm hope, I'm looking forward to watching, you know, in theory with you over Zoom, just because yes. I know we get a good case of the of the mm. pre-match nerves yep. as well. Will Hattel will be joining us too. Let's go. I, I'd love yep. that. Yeah, fantastic. It's also hilarious that Liverpool have scored 18 more goals than Arsenal and conceded two fewer. Uh, and yet the two sides are separated by two points and 20 goals uh, in terms of goal differential. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. Well, we will await that result and we'll definitely talk about it next week when Caleb makes his long-awaited return to the podcast. But thank you for bearing with us. It's been a good time. We've talked about some really interesting stuff on this episode. You know, up Steven Gerrard, up Liverpool, up Canada. Uh, I've up been Nick Gunners. I've been Nathan Strauss. Oh, we Canada, see- our home and native land. Yes, that has been us. And we will see you all next time. <laughs>